Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond Eight Figures. It's AJ, your journeyman entrepreneur, and we have another wonderful episode today. So, today's guest is an author of amazing books like Built to Sell and the new The Art of Selling Your Business. I read Built to Sell a year and a half after I sold my last business, and almost every page felt like a stark reminder of all the mistakes I had made previously. Uh, it is incredibly well written and very quick and easy and deep. And if I had a time machine, that book would be on the top of my list of books to bring back with me. I use it so much now that I am building another business and I'm really excited to start incorporating the art of selling your business too. So John, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Yeah. So anyway, great to be with you, AJ. I, I, uh, after Built to Sell the book, I started to do this podcast called Built to Sell Radio, where I interview entrepreneurs about their exit. And what I noticed was that there was most of the entrepreneurs I interviewed, you know, they get an industry average multiple. So if they're in a service business, you know, they might, might sell for one times revenue or something, you know, something similar to that. And, and yet there are some entrepreneurs that I interviewed that seemed to punch well above their weight. They're selling oftentimes multiples of revenue as opposed to multiples of EBITDA. And it got me kind of really fascinated about like, what are they doing differently? How are they approaching their business to sell in a different way that gets this outlandish multiple? And so that's really what I've started to think about. We've done 300 episodes. And so I distilled what the best practices of some of these entrepreneurs that seem to punch above their weight into this book, The Art of Selling Your Business, which lays out a, a bit of a blueprint for entrepreneurs to follow to maximize you know, their take at the end of the day when they, when they go to sell. So the value builder system, does that follow the book or is the book kind of also based on that you know, from your yeah, no, I, I run a software company. My day job is the value builder system where we help entrepreneurs improve the value of their business. Uh, but no, you know, the value builder system is more about how do you create a valuable company uh, so that you could sell. And and most of the entrepreneurs we work with actually don't want to sell, but they would like to know they could sell. It's funny, I, when I do a speech to entrepreneurs, you know, after the pandemic, I'll hopefully be able to do more, more of that again, but I'll, I'll have entrepreneurs say like, how many of you want to sell your business? And if I have a room of 100 people, maybe one hand will go up in the air. Yet, if I ask the question, how many would like to know you could sell your business if and when you're ready, like virtually every hand goes in the air, right? Like we all want to be building an asset that is valuable. And so that's really what we focus on at Value Builder. It's really just building a, a, a valuable company, regardless of whether you want to sell it or not. But the Art of Selling Your Business book is really about that final stage. How do you harvest the value you've created by punching above your weight when it comes to selling? It is very interesting because... I'm also in the position where I'm looking to buy a company 
as part of you know my journey. And what I find funny was like, okay, looking for aspects in you know what you're talking about, you know, from it of like companies that have set themselves up correctly, but hoping they don't fully recognize it. <laughs> yeah, unfortunate. It's that yeah the thing, but the value in having that asset. Yeah, I know. I sold because I was burnt out on um, my own company, you know, previously. And I've had these conversations with other entrepreneurs just like you have, where it's like the thing that we don't like is when we're forced in the business, when you're constantly trying to put the fire. So, you know, looking at your systems, looking at the books, talking about it and talking about that in, you know, environment, it feels like someone's talking to us like, oh, yes, you can actually enjoy it. There are fun parts beyond just the typical things we find. How often do you see people kind of take aspects of your books or mix and match, you know, and then truly implementing what you consider to be the core aspects of them or effective aspects of them? Well, yeah, I mean, I hope that we hear that a lot and we do hear that a lot. And, and I, it brings me an, an immense sort of satisfaction when I hear somebody who had a company where they were at the epicenter, they were working too many hours, they were very stressed out and and migrate to a business where they're uh, really sitting on top of the business, running it as opposed to kind of doing the work. And I think that you know, that is a a gratifying feeling. You know, I think of Debbie King. Uh, Debbie King's one of our certified value builders. But before that, she uh, ran a a really interesting but deeply dependent business that was deeply dependent on her personally, that was in the in the space of doing data analytics for associations. And it was the kind of business that was very, very custom. Every job was custom. Every project was unique. And, and every client wanted Debbie because she was the guru. And she read Built to Sell. And she's like, I'm done. I, I'm not going to build this business, which is effectively just a job for me. I'm going to create a valuable company. And she went about completely transforming her business into one that was subscription-based, not dependent on her personally. And then she sold it. And now she's Great. Thankfully, you know, joined the value builder community as one of our, one of our advisors. So I, I, I love hearing stories like that. I, I do have the luxury of hearing them maybe once, once or twice a month. And, and I get these emails from somebody I never, never know. It said that said, you know, like I read your book and it changed my life. Uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it's obviously hugely gratifying to hear that. Do you have your people, you know, talk to people at different aspects of the growth? Like I probably should have, if I had known about earlier more when i was in that million and a half two and a half few years into the business you know then automatic customer probably as we were scaling and growing more towards the four five and if i had been smart when i did start having those selling conversations near six it's like that's how i would kind of play but where do you normally tell people to sort of bring your you know your books and bring the concepts into their their efforts. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a bit of a trilogy. So built to sell is about how do you build a valuable company, automatic customer, how do you accelerate the value through recurring revenue? And then the art of selling your business, how do you harvest the value? And I would do them in that order. I would read them in that order and I would sort of apply them in that order. Um, ideally, you read Built to Sell uh, before you even start a business because it allows you to create it from the ground up that it's so that it's not dependent on you personally. You know, I, I had a, a really cool interview with a guy named Greg Alexander. Greg built a consultancy and he was in, it was called SBI, Sales Benchmark Index. 
And he had one of the principles in Built to Sell was that you build a company from the beginning so that it's not dependent on you personally. And Greg sort of had that idea at the epicenter of his you know, soul. He was like, I'm not going to build SBI, this sales benchmarking company, even though he himself is a very dynamic leader, great presenter, an amazing salesperson. He's like, I'm not going to build this so that it's dependent on me. I'm going to hire people, the best of the best, to kind of build it out. So he did that. And he started very small, uh, literally from his kitchen table, built it up, so that it was generating $30 million of annual revenue. Now, at the, along the way, he decided to sell his company. And a lot of entrepreneurs, when they sell, they go from the sort of backseat where they're sort of sitting on their business working, you know, as Michael Gerber says, working on, not in their business, to the point where they're actually in the midst of trying to actively sell their business, they get much more involved, right? They're doing the negotiations with the buyers. They're sort of, you know, doing the pitch decks and the presentations and so forth. Greg avoided that temptation. He was like, I started this business so that it could be run without me and I'm going to finish the journey in the same posture. And so he empowered his president to sell his company. This is a business generating $30 million of annual revenue. He sold it for $162 million. The punchline of the story is Greg never met the buyers. They wrote a nine-figure check and Greg never met them. He let his president run the entire negotiation. Now, Greg was in the background approving the kind of key milestones along the way, but that's what I mean from starting from scratch with this premise of a built-to-sell business is not dependent on the owner. It, it should be structured really from the get-go so that it can run without the owner. And if you follow that through all the way through to the day you want to sell it, it can be a recipe for creating a tremendous amount of value. Because again, if you put yourself, I mean, uh, AJ, you know this from the standpoint of you're now interested in buying a business. Like, you know, as a buyer, you want a company that's going to succeed without the owner. You're going to write a check to the owner um, and they're going to go off into the sunset. You're going to want a business that continues after he or she leaves. And buyers, not surprisingly, pay a huge premium for companies that can run without their owner, which again is the premise um, behind the book Built to Sell. How hard do you think it is for people, like how hard and then over what type of period of time to start incorporating the value building system? You know, just because I think that is maybe the overall company versus the individual books, which are individual. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you a sense of, of what we know because of course it varies by uh, owner, but what we do know is when the average or the, the, business owner starts with us, we invite them to complete the value builder questionnaire, which is the first intake questionnaire. And the average score on that is 59 out of a possible 100. That's an amalgam of eight, your score on eight key drivers of your company's value, things like recurring revenue, growth potential, uh, financial performance, that kind of stuff. Um, the average business score is 59 out of possible 100. And when we, when we look at the offers those companies have received, uh, they are on average 3.5 times pre-tax profit. Now, the after picture is when you go through the value builder system and you improve your score up to 90 out of a possible 100. So these are the sort of best performers. Those businesses are trading at 7.1 times pre-tax profit or more than double 
the average business. The other thing that, that's kind of unique about the 90 plus guys and gals is that they are almost three times more likely to have received a written offer to buy their business. And if you, again, if you go back to what I think entrepreneurs want, most of them don't necessarily want to want to sell, but they want to know they could. And getting inbound offers uh, leaves you in the catbird seat, right? You, you can you can decide to engage or simply play one offer off the other to see if there's a bidding war at hand. Uh, it it gives you tremendous leverage in the negotiation to be approached as opposed to be the one approaching, and so that's the the essence of um, of the value builder system. And to answer your question directly, like how long does it take to go from a fifty nine to a ninety? Again, it depends on the company. Uh, depends how quickly it's growing, how how you know the appetite they have to to really uh, uh, invest in some of these uh, some of the principles. But uh, but it can be kind of months or years depending on on how long. Uh, uh, and how dedicated the the entrepreneur is. What kind of led to you wanting to create you know this type of system? What part of your earlier entrepreneur journey, like what were you doing that kind of made this? Like you know what, I think I want to talk about this and want to then build systems around this, and I want to create this system. Yeah, you know, I, I remember the day I was in a in a boardroom in Toronto with a guy named Perry Mealy. He uh, he's an M and A guy, mergers and acquisition professional, and I walked into his office that day feeling like I was sitting on a bit of a gold mine. I had built a quantitative market research business where we did analytics and and uh, all kinds of of research for very large enterprise organizations. So our clients were, you know. Uh, Apple was a client, American Express was a client, Bank of America was a client, all these massive companies. And I thought, you know, someone was going to want to buy my customer list, right? And and we had, you know, we had, I don't know, five or six million in revenue at the time. We were probably 30 employees. Like, it was a successful business, uh, you know, on the outside. And so profit margins were I don't know, 20 to 30%, you know, month over month. You know, like, it was good. It was a good business. And so I said, I went to Perry and I said, you know, like, what do you think it's worth kind of rubbing my hands together? And he said, well, kind of depends on the answer to a couple of questions. And I said, shoot. And he said, all right, well, who does the research? And I'm like, well, you know, like I, I'm involved in the research, you know, like we do work with Google and Apple. Of course, I'm still sort of hands on. And he says, okay, well, who does the selling? And I'm like, well, you know, like I'm selling to these massive companies. I, you know, I've got to, you know, it's my company. I got to be part of the sales process. And he says, okay, let me get this straight. You got a research company where you do the research and you do the selling. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, I can't sell your company. There's nothing to sell. It's worthless. And I remember those words like it was yesterday. I mean, he, it was, it was really tough for me to hear that. Uh, because I'd walked into that office thinking I had this just tremendously valuable company that someone would want to buy a client, my, buy my client list. And again, AJ, this goes back 25 years ago. So this is a long time ago. Uh, but it kicked off for me this, this journey, this search for like what does drive the value of your company? If it's not your client list and if it's not these Fortune 500 customers and it's not necessarily just EBITDA or revenue, like what, what, what is the driver? So it, it, it sort of kicked off this journey. I, you know, we transformed that company into a subscription model, uh, with recurring revenue. Uh, we hired salespeople. It wasn't dependent on me anymore. Ultimately it was acquired by a New York stock exchange listed 
business in 2008. So it has a happy ending. It has a Cinderella kind of story to it, but it wasn't happy to hear those words that my company was worthless. And so it I think as I think back onto why I'm so passionate about this topic and and why you know we're uh, we're so focused on this sort of niche, it's 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 probably because of that conversation with Perry and how much he taught me in a, in a sort of tough love kind of way about what does drive the value of a company. Yeah, and I remember in reading your book. Now I had been courted by holding companies from some of the large advertising firms and even opened my <laughs> opened my kimono, opened, gave him open access to my books for a while. In talking, what I found so interesting was they had been hitting me so much about there was no value without me continuing on. Yeah, and just basically prepping me for a bad... In reading your book, I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> if I had actually done the things I wanted to do, which would have been... Yeah, that, yeah, I, I remember yeah, very much that like moment where you're just like, oh, things have to change. Do you find that's how most entrepreneurs come through to your books and start your system? They've had this moment where the value isn't what they think it is? Yeah, that's that's exactly right, AJ. So the, the typical kind of persona for for pretty much all of what we do, but in particular at Value Builder, is an entrepreneur who is told their business is not worth what they thought it was. And whether that's from their accountant, uh, a friend, uh, a buyer, uh, anybody who turns around and says, yeah, it's not really worth you know, worth what you thought it was. And like, like I did, and, and I, and I get it, you know, your business is your baby. It, it's, it, you think it's your ticket to a, a great retirement, et cetera. Uh, but when someone tells you it's not worth what you think it is, it can be hard, but it, it, I think in the best entrepreneurs, it, it triggers a, a discovery of, of, okay, well, what will drive the value of your company? And, and so I think it's, you know, it's funny for a lot of entrepreneurs, um, you know, we don't get to practice selling our company. You know, I, I'm reminded of um, the guy who, Sully, who landed that airplane on the Hudson River like 10 years ago. Yeah. He I'm was, New you know, know. Yeah. <laughs> he's like a 40 year veteran of, of uh, flying was a teacher, I think, and a trainer. And so it was kind of like he'd done everything there was to do in an airplane, right? And yet he'd never had the opportunity to land a plane on the Hudson River. And the stakes were high, right? He had hundreds of people on board, or at least 100 people on board, and he had to get it right. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, I think they're, it's kind of like their selling moment, right? Like, they build a company for 25 years. They know everything there is to know about hiring employees, marketing plans, like, like blah, 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 blah. Like they, they've done it all, right? Yet they've never sold the company. And that's, uh, that's a whole different skill set. And it's one of the reasons that, uh, that we're sort of passionate about what we do is because uh, I think we, we're, we're adding a lot of value to, to in, a, in a topic that, that business owners can be uh, excused for not knowing anything about because it's just not something you do every day. And uh, yet, it, as, as you rightly mentioned in your introduction, you know, a, uh, the stakes are high. Like if you screw it up, it can be a once in a lifetime mistake. So, yeah. And, yeah, you know, I know I left millions on the table, but you know, I love the Sully thing because it immediately made me feel like one of those uh, inexperienced test pilots that like hits the ground and like I lived, jumped out of the plane. 
That's kind of how I feel. Like, yeah, I feel, you know, after the fact, yes, I'm successful. I, I lived. Um, not that I landed the plane or did anything that well. I just lived. Um, well, I'm glad, I, you know, I'm glad you, you can be positive and philosophical about it. I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, their first business is often their training wheels business. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I don't mean that to, to in any way negate or minimize your first business because I know it was a significant company with lots of clients and lots of revenue. And we kind of have to get the first one out of our system <laughs> to, to sort of uh, figure out what the full life cycle journey is and understand what the end looks like. So we all know the feeling of seeing a movie for the second time. You kind of know how it ends. And I think that's a very good thing to go through. Too many owners, I think, in my personal opinion, build one business and, and look down their nose at the concept of selling it. And I think that's a mistake because the, the, the premise of selling, that the full life cycle of a company, I think you learn more in the last chapter than you do in any of the previous chapters. I think you learn what drives the value of your business through the eyes of an acquirer. Like they will tell you what drives the eye. You know, in your case, it was, it was you. They wanted you to stick around. And so they could clearly, you know, that's clearly uh, communicating to you as an owner that you're too dependent on the company, that you need to create systems and productize your service and all that jazz, which you've now done in your next business. So I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, we, we miss that lesson because we never go through the process of selling. Uh, you know, for many, you know, they'll say, oh yeah, I'll sell in five years. You you meet them up five years later and you say, Hey, did you sell that company? But Oh no, we're still trying this. Or we're going to add this. Or we're going to, well, you know, we're, we're probably another five years away from selling. It. And they just like, I got, a, I've got a buddy of mine who I've known for uh, probably 15 years. And you know, he's talked about selling for probably 10 of those years, but still hasn't pulled the trigger. And I just think, Oh, uh, you know, never, you never know when the next pandemic, the next black swan is going to be. And I think if you've built a valuable company, it, there's a really strong case to be made to, to, to monetize some of that value. Well, one of the things I found interesting sort of as people started seeing, you know, like after the shock of the memo and I've seen in, you know, with looking at the systems you talk about and the pieces, companies that had systems around decision-making and sort of not that they had planned for a pandemic because I think, you know, in my craziest ex thing. I don't think I ever had pandemic, but companies that had systems and structures in place were something like 80% more likely to return to previous growth. Also then to jump on what you talk about, entrepreneurs on the first thing, it's becoming easier to do both create a business and to sell a business at various value points that I think what I'm not hearing though much is this idea around how to become a better entrepreneur, what it's usually so focused on the individual business or the other piece, but in looking at your value building system, it seems so many of the people are people who are out on their multiple journey. Yeah, they've already done it a few times, if not more. How do you see that entrepreneurial journey of multiple business owners or multiple actions occurring over the next five, 10 years? 
Yeah. So one of the things we talk a lot about uh, with our certified value builders is, is, is this concept of mountain climbers, freedom fighters, and craftspeople. So there, what we've discovered is there are three types of entrepreneurs uh, based on, or you could segment the small business market into three different types of owners based on their psychographics or their motivations as a human being. Mountain climbers are motivated to grow a company. They're motivated by achievement, uh, by success, by acknowledgement, by competition. So all external sort of forces, and they are very keen to grow and, and build a business. Freedom fighters are the second segment, and they're motivated by independence. So they don't want to create the next Google, the next Tesla, the next uh, Shopify. They are really trying to create a company that gives them the ultimate independence, independence of what they do, who they work with, you know, what projects they work on. Financial independence is also important, but not because they want to buy a Ferrari, but because they want to feel free and independent of any one controlling force. Uh, I remember I interviewed uh, Jason Freed, the guy behind Basecamp, and I talked to him about the transition from the original version of 37 Signals, which was a custom web design shop, into Basecamp, a project management software. And he said, you know, what I, what I love today about Basecamp is that I've got tens of thousands of customers and I build the software that I think will be most meaningful to as many of them as possible. No one client tells me what to do anymore. And he hated that feeling of being beholden to a big client and loves the feeling to having tens of thousands of customers. So that's a freedom fighter in my view. The third group is called a craftspeople. And they are motivated by mastery, meaning they want to be acknowledged for being a guru, an expert at what it is they do. And so a lot of, you know, plumbers, carpenters, photographers, writers, they're not trying to build great businesses or even big businesses. They're really trying to be acknowledged. And what gives them a tremendous source of pride and purpose is being acknowledged for their expertise. And it can be their Achilles heel because it often keeps their business very, very small, often just them, uh, because they are so almost needy of the third-party acknowledgement of their expertise. To answer your question in a very long-winded way, mountain climbers are the most likely to be serial and portfolio entrepreneurs. When I say serial entrepreneurs, you've heard that term before, obviously. It means that they've had many companies in their, in their past. Um, portfolio entrepreneurs are slightly different. They are running more than one business simultaneously. That's the definition of a portfolio entrepreneur. And mountain climbers are most likely to be both of those things. And so when I think about your question you know, what is the life cycle and the journey of a, of a, of, of the typical business owner? I would say for most freedom fighters and craftspeople, they want, they create one business, uh, and in freedom fighters case, they sell it and they retire. In the case of craftspeople, they will never sell it because it's too dependent on them personally in, mo in the vast majority of cases. Whereas mountain climbers are much more likely to get in and out quickly. And the technology that you reference, the global marketplace for talent and you know, ubiquitous Wi-Fi, et cetera, those just accelerate the, 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 the gestation period for mountain climbers. I, you know, I interviewed a guy... Um, Jizdeki is his, his surname. He built a company that builds that built like a an app that helped you create an iPhone app. So if small businesses who wanted to create an iPhone app couldn't afford sixty grand for a developer. He built this app, and I think from start 
to sale, it was like eight years and sold it for more than $20 million, created a lot of value in eight years. Uh, that's what I'm, that's what I'm seeing more of, uh, especially technology enabled businesses, but that's, a, it's only one of three different kinds of entrepreneurs. No, and I, I like that because, yeah, I think, yeah, I know craftsmen, I know people who are running the same business in their sixties that like they had in their twenties and they're happy and it's like who they are. It, you know, it provides a good living, but it's never going to be insane. And then, yes, I know the people who are like crushing it as much as possible while they're running, but the moment it's, they can sell it, they're, you know, happy as a clam never to talk about business again. And then I think others of us are like, okay, how do we use what we've learned? And I, yeah, I like, I like how you kind of put that. Um, when would you can suggest a business start looking at the value business value building system, or would you have them focus on working with an advisor to kind of come into that system? Come into yeah, I system? think it, it, when you hit a million dollars in annual revenue, that's a great time to 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 uh, start leveraging value builder. A million dollars in revenue roughly equates to five to ten employees, and that's a great spot because you've got enough of a team uh, where you can start to create systems and processes and really start to build it so that it's not dependent on you. If you're $100,000 in revenue, uh, you know, at that stage, it's 100% you, right? And so while we can help, we can, it's, there's a limit to how much we can help. But once a business reaches seven figures, um, there's a little bit of infrastructure, there's a few employees, that's where we can really, I think, really hit the ground running. So once you hit uh, that milestone, um, and I think also there's probably a top end where value builder sort of is less relevant. You know, what I, it, my experience is that once a company generally gets to be worth around, you know, 10 million, maybe as much as 20 million, um, it's very rare that it's owner led still. In most cases, entrepreneurs reach something called the freedom point where they realize that the sale of their business will create enough liquid wealth that they never have to work again. I'm reminded of, of Rob Walling. I interviewed uh, for the show. Uh, he built a, a great little business called Drip, built it up to $2 million in annual revenue, was entertaining offers of between nine and 12 times revenue. And he pretty quickly realized this is life-changing money. I never have to work again. And he chose to sell the business. That's the freedom point. And that doesn't mean you you don't, you won't work again, but you create enough wealth that you don't have to work again. And so most entrepreneurs kind of realize that somewhere around $10 million of value could be five, could be 15, but by 20, those businesses are very rarely 100% owned by their owner, their original founder. They're usually private equity led, or they've fall into the hands of a strategic or there's a second or third generation of family, you know, led leadership in place. But it's very rare that the, like an owner, like the Jeff Bezos's of the world that go from like scratch to billions of value. They're very, very rare. Most people reach five or 10 million bucks in value. And they're like, I'm out of here. <laughs> this was a great run, but this is enough money for me to live for the rest of my life. Yeah. I want out. Speaking of that, I know, you know, and legacy is kind of a very broad, quite you know how you think about it, legacy. But do you think about you know the legacy like 
are you building these systems so you can leave it for your family, value, sell it? You know, how do you consider legacy as you look at what you're doing here? Yeah, the L word. I, you know, I'm not a big legacy guy. I think in a hundred years, very few people will remember anybody. In a thousand years, nobody will remember anybody that lived today. And so I think legacy is 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 sort of um it's the kind of thing that that frankly fills people's egos, but really I don't think is very meaningful. So I'm not looking to create a legacy. I don't believe in dynastic wealth. I'm not a fan of family businesses. I think most family business transitions usually end up hor- horribly badly, um, either for the kids or for the owner or both. So I'm just not a big fan. I would never pass a business to my kids. I would never sell a business to my kids ever, full stop, never. If I had any sort of aspiration for a legacy, it, it would it would simply to I think that the old expression, give your kids roots and wings, it would simply be to give the kids, uh, our kids, uh, you know, roots. They feel like they're part of something, if, you know, this value system and, and wings to go do whatever they want to go do. I have no interest in, in, in them doing what I do, and I would hate that. And so I hope they go do something totally of their own volition. And if, if I, you know, if I'm lucky enough to, to have kids who are, you know, functioning members of society and doing what they love and are happy, then that is plenty legacy for me. I, I don't need any, you know, I don't, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I'm not worried about what people are, th- are going to say about me in a hundred years. Uh, Cause I don't think many people will remember. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think most of us it's, as, yeah, it's a great concept, but it is really for me, it's, I don't want to give my kids enough money to do nothing, but I want to be able to give my kids the ability to do the things that they're willing. Yeah, I think that was the Warren Buffett yeah. sort of sort of philosophy, right? Not yeah. enough to do anything, <laughs> no. but not enough to do nothing. You know. Well, yeah, but his I do find it funny because his thing was I'm only giving him ten million. <laughs> you <know>? Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. You only get ten yeah. million. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Sorry, Dad. Um, yeah. Oh well. Well, thank you, thank you very, very much. I'm really excited, you know, that you were able to come because you have had a big impact on, you know, the way I look at creating and building businesses and also kicking myself in the rear of your mirror. Um, I think, you know, I'm excited to be able to read your newest book, but then kind of diving more into the value business system. I really think more entrepreneurs should take a look at this because I do think it's such a great concept. And I think, yeah, you know, how you look at the video and how you carry it can create so much more value. So I thank you so much for coming on the show and um, hope to have you on next for your next book and hopefully more when you talk about these journeys we're doing as entrepreneurs. Thanks, AJ. Appreciate it. Remember, down in the show notes, you can find links to all the books and learn more about his program and other efforts. John's an amazing person and you will not go wrong by reading the books. It will help you so much on your entrepreneurial journey. And remember, why not also check out all of our social links? Come follow us, come sign up for the newsletter, and always let us know how we can make the show better for you. All right, everyone, thank you, and I hope you have a wonderful day, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again. All right, bye-bye. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. 
And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.